we were speaking particularly of the tendency in our own hearts to drift away from the will of God and the things which God would desire us to be doing. That we are prone to wander, as the hymnist wrote, from the disciplines and efforts of piety and godliness. And as we talked about this, this recognition grew, or has been growing in my wife and I, and it's, it's, I would call it this, and I'm going to need to explain, this recognition that has been growing in us as ministers is a fear of failure. Now, that doesn't sound very good, so I'm going to explain. As we live out our Christian lives, as my wife and I raise our daughters, as we minister to the church, we have become ever vigilant, as it were. We've realized how easy it is for us to drift from our service to God. We've seen how easy it is to become complacent and to allow things to creep into our lives that would soften our service to God. Perhaps the world creeps into our lives, or laziness creeps into our lives, or busyness creeps into our lives, and therefore improper priorities. Perhaps even simply selfishness, whereby we seek our own things instead of the things of Christ. We've noticed the tendencies in our hearts to wander. And this has instilled in us a healthy recognition of how easy it would be for us to become ineffective ministers of Jesus Christ. How easy would it be for me, as the pastor of Legacy Baptist Church, to become an ineffective minister, as perhaps I deliver my sermons on Sundays, but the rest of the week I live in a manner that is not what it ought to be for God. How easy would it be for my wife and I, as ministers of the Lord Jesus Christ, to fail in our opportunities to minister to our neighbors, to minister to our community through laziness, through busyness, through complacency, through fear. How easy would it be for us to lose our testimony, for us to lose our distinction, for us to lose our love, or for us to lose our zeal? And this is what I mean when I say a fear of failure. That recently we have been reacquainted with the numerous pitfalls that confront the servants of Jesus Christ. Paul knew this fear of failure as well. Let me read to you 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 through 27. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery, for the goal, to win, is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, he says, not as uncertainly. So fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. See, there was a healthy fear in Paul's heart that he would fail to glorify God in his body as he sought to teach others to glorify God in their bodies. And he used this idea of a marathon. He also used the, the, the illustration of boxing. He says, everyone in the marathon, they're running the race and they're running to win. Only one of them is going to receive the prize, so I'm going to run as fast as I can. And I've got to let go of all of those things in my life that are going to hold me back, that are going to weigh me down, that are going to keep me from attaining to the best possible finish. He says, so I'm going to run. Not as uncertainly. I'm not going to run as if I'm running in any direction. I see the goal in front of me. I'm going to fight, but not like a man that's just swinging at the air. I'm going to hit something when I swing. 
He says, I'm going to keep under my body. I'm going to keep myself disciplined and in subjection. He had a fear, lest by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. When I've told everyone else what they should do, I would have failed. A proper fear of failure. He would go on in 1 Corinthians 15.10 to say this, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. He said that I recognize that it's, it's only by God's grace that I can do the things that I do. But I'm still going to work as hard as I can because I don't want my labors to be in vain. Paul was compelled to labor more abundantly lest he fall short of the grace that he had been given. Now take careful note, please, as we start our sermon this morning, that in none of these verses Paul expressed a fear that he would lose his salvation. He only feared that he would lose spiritual effectiveness and the purpose that God had called him unto. As Paul neared the end of his life, a part of his rejoicing was that he had made it to the end having not turned aside from the grace of God. He wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 and 7, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. See, nowhere in Scripture does it teach we can lose our salvation. But it does teach that we as believers can fail spiritually. We can fail to accomplish that which God has called us to. We can fall short of His perfect will for us as believers. And today in John 18, verses 1 through 27, we are going to see a man who failed. His name is Peter. Throughout the ministry of Jesus Christ, Peter was undoubtedly the most outspoken of the disciples. We often refer to him as the spokesman of the twelve, and rightfully so, for good or for ill, he really was. As Jesus had been announcing his death and departure, Simon Peter was particularly vocal, both about Christ's death and his own devotion to Christ. In Matthew 16, 22, Peter rebuked Jesus for saying that he was going to die. He actually rebuked Jesus, and Jesus responded, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Turn with me, if you would, to John 13. A few chapters back in the book of John. As we continue to trace the life of Peter that brought him to this place of spiritual failure, in this chapter, John 13, Jesus sought to wash the disciples' feet, and Peter forbade him. Look at what he says in verse 8. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. To which Jesus replied in verse 8, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. To which Peter again replied in verse 9, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Peter's vocal devotion to Jesus Christ was very strong. At first he says, Jesus, don't wash my feet. That's beneath you. Jesus said, I need to wash your feet, or else you have no part in me. In his zeal he said, well, then wash all of me, because he loved Christ so much. Continuing in the book of 
John chapter 13, Jesus announces his departure. Notice what is, uh, t- transpires in verse 36. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, Whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Notice Peter's response in verse 37. Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. This statement is the pinnacle of Peter's heart for Jesus Christ and for his teachings. He loved Christ with all his heart. He loved and was devoted to the teachings of Jesus Christ. He states here that he would even lay down his life for Christ's sake. The statement is so bold. It's so noble. It's filled with such love and such determination. But the problem was, it wasn't true. Jesus replied to him in verse 38, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, the cock shall not crow, till thou hast denied me thrice. Really, Peter? You will lay down your life for my sake? Let me tell you something, Peter. The rooster will not crow until you have three times denied me. But though there's a chapter break at John 13, verse 38, it's important that we keep reading because Jesus Christ is not done speaking and his words are still in the context of the sorrow and denial that the disciples will face in the hours to come. So notice what Jesus Christ then says in chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. And he goes on to tell them that in his Father's house are many mansions, that he, is, that he will go to prepare a place for them, and he will come again. The comfort will come. And we've talked this much over the past many weeks. Today from John 18, as you may turn back there now, we're going to consider spiritual failure. As we do so, again, I am not speaking about losing our salvation. The scriptures teach us we cannot lose our salvation. I'm not speaking of not persevering and thus never being saved. For there is nothing in the scriptures that, when interpreted correctly, would lend us to the conclusion that we must persevere in righteousness and sanctified living unto death as believers. When I speak However, what I speak of is the threat of spiritual failure, excuse me, whereby we fail in our service to Christ. We fail to do what God has called us to do. Perhaps this is a failure of testimony. Perhaps a failure of sanctification. Perhaps a failure of evangelism. To the extent that we become like the branch that Jesus described in John 15 that was cast into the fire. Or we become like that salt that has no savor in Matthew 5, verse 13, that is cast out and trodden under the foot of men. Men who, though they believe in Jesus Christ, have lost their distinction and therefore have lost their testimony. And may I remind you, and we'll see this even from the life of Peter, that spiritual failure is not final. There is restoration. There is repentance. And we can still be used of God, even after spiritual failure. However, we need to learn some lessons today from Peter's failing. And as we do so, we'll see three areas of life and ministry wherein we are in danger of spiritual failure. 
Three areas that we need to be ever vigilant lest we fall into spiritual failure. Three areas of our lives that we need to take particular care of. Three attitudes in our lives that could lead us to spiritual failure. We're only going to look at one this morning. We'll look at the other two this evening. If you're not going to be able to be here this evening, I encourage you to take the time sometime this week and listen to the second part online. I'll have those sermons online uh, early in the week, either Monday or Tuesday, and you'll have the opportunity to listen to them if you so desire. So please look with me in John 18. We'll begin in verse 1. Our scene opens in John 18 with Jesus and his disciples finally getting over the book of Cedron and into the Garden of Gethsemane. The book of John leaves out Jesus' prayer in the garden. He doesn't speak of that prayer, that time where he adjures the disciples to watch him pray. Sometime we'll preach through the Synoptic Gospels and we'll, we'll talk about that prayer then. In verse 2, however, it tells us that Judas knew of the place because the disciples had often gone there with Jesus throughout the course of his ministry. As a matter of fact, as we recall from earlier in the book of John, sometimes Jesus Christ slept up there. He would minister in Jerusalem during the day, generally during a feast, and then he would go up to Mount Olivet, to the Garden of Gethsemane perhaps, and he would sleep there for the night. So Judas, verse 3 says, received a band of men from the Pharisees, and he led these men to the garden. They had with them, according to verse 3, lanterns and torches and weapons. One might wonder at this. One might wonder why it was that these men brought weapons to carry captive the Prince of Peace. Why they would bring weapons and seek to fight with a man who preached forgiveness. But they did. They came prepared not just to arrest, but literally for war. And you know, we really shouldn't be surprised, for we will see in a moment that though Jesus Christ indeed, in himself indeed offered no resistance to these men, his followers were not as willing to see him fall into the hands of the Pharisees and into the hand of the Sanhedrin. So these men approached. Jesus asks them in verse 4, Whom seek ye? Who are you looking for? Notice how they answered in verse 5. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. Verse 6, And as soon as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Perhaps they fell backward because they thought that maybe Christ would immediately fight back, but I don't think so. More likely they fell backward at the very authority of the presence of the God of all flesh whom they had come to arrest and destroy. You'll notice if you have a King James Bible there, I'm not sure how it is in other translations, that as Jesus Christ responded, you'll see that I am is in regular font and he is in italics. It's the exact same in, in verse 6. I am and he is in italics. When you see the italics in your King James Version, what you're looking at is a place where the translators supplied a word. Now, oftentimes they would supply this word so that you could understand the context better. It's a word that is implied but not supplied in the Greek, so they want it there, it needs to be there, or, or they determine it ought to be there for understanding, but it's not in the original text. 
And what's interesting about this word being missing in this particular instance is that without that word, it leaves simply the two words, I am. Do you remember back earlier in the book of John? Jesus Christ was speaking with the Pharisees, and they were talking about Abraham and how they were children of Abraham. And Jesus Christ said, before Abraham was, I am. And it's very interesting because that idea, I, I am, in the Greek, you, you never actually need to supply the word I. It, it's oftentimes understood by the verb. The verb can tell you what tense you're in and so what um, pronoun you need to use. And so you don't need that I. And yet in the Greek, he says, ego, a me, I am. Because what Jesus Christ was doing there is he was associating himself with the burning bush. Do you remember me preaching on that? He is associating himself with Moses standing before the burning bush when from the burning bush Moses heard the words, I am that I am. And Moses says, who should I tell them sent me? And he says, tell the nation of Israel or the children of Israel that I am hath sent you. I am that I am. And here Jesus Christ is doing the exact same thing. They say, we are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus says, ego, a me, in the Greek, I am. There would have been tremendous power and authority behind those words as he declared himself to be God. Ego, a me. So under the authority of this man who is God, they fell backwards and onto the ground. So he asked them again, whom seek ye? They again answer, Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 8, Jesus answered, I have told you that I am. And notice again, he is in italics. But he adds something this time. He adds a little extra in the second half of verse 8. He says, if therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. See, Jesus had mentioned back in John 12, we preached about it just last week. He had mentioned in John, excuse me, 17, 12, um, that a part of God's will for him on this earth was that he would lose none of his disciples. That a part of God's will for him was that spiritually and physically, none of his disciples would be lost. He says, except for the son of perdition, the one who was ordained to be lost, Judas Iscariot. To that end, Jesus requests here in John 18 that they be let go. That they be let go to flee to do what they to do what they were going to do and not to be arrested. Apparently they comply because none of the disciples are taken. But you know, Peter would have none of this. Notice in verse 10 it says, Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Peter draws his sword and cuts off the ear of Malchus. Now immediately notice what Jesus does. Then Jesus said unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath. And he says this, The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Now we know from the synoptic gospels that Jesus did in fact pick up the ear of Malchus and place it back on his head, and the ear went back onto his head and his wound was healed. But what is important about this particular passage in John is Jesus Christ rebuking Peter. In Matthew 16, verse 22, we read, Peter discouraging Christ's submission to God's plan. God had announced there, as I read already, I'm going to die. And Peter rebukes him and says, you are not going to die. And what does Jesus say? Get thee behind me, 
Satan, for thou savorest not the things of God, but of man. Peter was attempting to divert Jesus Christ from God's perfect will, and Jesus rebuked him. Well, he hadn't learned his lesson yet, because here again, Jesus Christ is submitting himself to the perfect will of the Father, and Peter is actually opposing God's will. See, while Peter thought he was serving God by physically opposing Christ's arrest, in reality, he was opposing the very deepest will of God through his action. Peter perhaps had a vision of Christ setting up his kingdom. And in his misguided zeal, he was convinced that the best way for the kingdom to come about was to fight any man opposed to it. See, Peter had still not realized that Christ's kingdom was not of this world. And in this ignorance, he acted in direct opposition to the will of God that was rooted in the redemption of all mankind. And this is what I'm trying to draw out of this first point this morning. That Peter, in an attempt to do what he thought was best, was actually working in direct opposition to the will of God. He was going to fail through misguided loyalty. So Jesus Christ, in loyalty to the will of God as opposed to the will of man, tells Peter in verse 11 to sheathe his sword and asks him, the cup which my father hath given, shall I not drink it? Peter, should I not submit myself to the will of the Father? Peter, should I not accept the task that God has given me to accomplish? And Peter, thinking he was doing something noble, perhaps even single-handedly saving the fate of Christ's kingdom, was in fact opposing the very kingdom of God. So verse 12 tells us that they bound Christ. And in verse 13, they led him away to Annas, who was the father-in-law to Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Caiaphas, we recall, was the same man who had prophesied that Jesus must die for the nation. We find that prophecy back in John 11, verse 50. When Caiaphas made the statement, he had made it intending to state that they needed to kill Jesus lest he incite riot and Rome take over. But in reality, his statement stood as absolutely correct, that it was indeed necessary for Jesus Christ to die for the nation and for the world. Such was the will of the Father, which Peter, at this moment in time, was withstanding. Now, we're going to pick up this evening in verse 15 and talk about Peter some more. But I really would like us to focus this morning on this final point, and we're actually almost done. As we conclude this first part, I'd like us to search our own hearts with regard to the first possible spiritual failure. You know, oftentimes, the actions with which, through misguided loyalties, we actually oppose the will of God are done in ignorance. But we see from Scripture that Christ still vehemently rebuked Peter for his opposition to God's will, even in the midst of Peter's good intentions. There's not a man or a woman in this room that desires to be guilty of actively opposing the will of God. But, you know, we might just possibly do it if we're not careful. Peter's problem here was misplaced loyalty. 
He was being loyal to his own concept of who God was and of what God wanted and of how God was going to bring about his kingdom instead of being loyal to the revealed will of God as taught through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. All throughout the ministry of Jesus Christ, he had taught God's will. He had said that he must need to suffer and die. He had told them that his kingdom was not of this world. He had revealed to them the teachings of the kingdom. And they've missed it. Peter has missed it. He has been so stuck on other loyalties that he has missed the loyalty to the most important thing, which was the teaching of Jesus Christ. He was being loyal to his own expectations of the kingdom instead of Christ's teachings on the kingdom. He was being loyal to his understanding of victory instead of Christ's teachings on victory. He was being loyal to the physical realities of the situation before him instead of the spiritual necessities of the situation before him. And you know, we can do the same thing if we're not careful. We can act in our lives in a way that we believe is in God's best interest, but which is in fact opposed to the revealed will of God. When we fail to understand God's will, or we fail to properly apply the wisdom of God to a situation, or fail to rest upon the teachings of God's word, we make ourselves susceptible to the same spiritual failing that Peter had just right here. Whereby we may spend our days in zealous service to our idea of what God's will is, but in fact we are working in direct opposition to God's will. That's what Peter was doing. Peter did not pull out his sword and cut off the ear of Malchus and try to fight these people thinking that he was openly and actively resisting God's will. Nor did he think, you know what, it's about time that I failed. That I failed in God's will for me, so I'm going to chop off this guy's ear. He thought he was doing what was best. He thought he was doing what was right. Just like he thought in Matthew 16 he was doing what was right when he rebuked Jesus for saying he was going to die. And how did Jesus respond to his rebuke? Get thee behind me, Satan. Whoa. Peter didn't learn his lesson. Peter didn't learn enough when he resisted Jesus Christ washing his feet. And Jesus said, well, then you have no part in me. He didn't learn enough he didn't learn that his zeal was, was sending him in the wrong direction. He had misguided loyalty. He thought he was helping, but he was actually not helping very much. You know, my girls sometimes do this. My girls sometimes do this right here. I don't know if any... Uh, 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 not everyone has been here on a Tuesday night. I don't know how many of you have seen it. But, you know, sometimes when we're putting things out in the morning, it even happened this morning, or we're picking things up on a Tuesday night from the sanctuary to put back in our room to disassemble before um, the week. Sometimes my girls want to help. And this morning my girls helped Evan put the black chairs in the back. Evan would take the chairs and he'd put them out. He lined them up all night. And my girls came up and they took the chairs and they pushed them all forward as far as they'd go. They hit the back of the seat. They were trying to help. They weren't helping. Sometimes my girls will help us put the cart away or put the books away. And we'll be putting books on the cart. And they'll be taking books off the cart. And we'll be putting books on the cart. And they'll be taking books off the cart. They're trying to help. They're not doing a good job. Or we'll be pushing the cart. And you know, we need to get the cart around all these corners and into the back room. And they're there pushing and pulling with us. 
and they're tripping over their feet and we're having to go really slow get around those corners really tight and now they're standing on the side and they're going to get squished if they stay there so we have to stop and move them out of the way and they're trying to help but just because they think they're helping just because they have the right intention just because they love mommy and daddy and they want to be a part of what's going on and they want to help doesn't mean they're helping as a matter of fact oftentimes they're being counterproductive can we not do the same thing to God do we not do the same thing to God do we not do the same thing in our spiritual lives we have misguided loyalties whereby we think we're doing something for God but in fact we're working against him whereby we think our loyalties are in the right place but they're not therefore we are actually working against him and as I think of, of misguided loyalties let me give you some examples we have misplaced loyalties whereby we're more loyal to the church than we are to the revealed will of God or more loyal to the pastor than to the revealed will of God whereby you've seen it happen in churches before the pastor is taking the church in the wrong direction or the church is going in the wrong direction but people even though they read their Bibles and they realize what's happening in the church is wrong they are more loyal to the church than they are to the Word of God they have misplaced their loyalties and in their zeal to serve God or in their zeal to do what they believe is right by following the church or by following the pastor they are in fact opposing the will of God or maybe our misplaced loyalty is to culture above the revealed will of God whereby we see a culture and we see the direction we're going and so they say, and so a pastor or a ministry or a family or an individual says I need to do this I need to conform to this element of culture I need to change the way we look, the way we dress, the way we do things, how we operate. We need to change to conform to culture. And they're seeking to serve God, but they're ignoring the Word of God as they're seeking to serve God. Misplaced loyalty. Or perhaps we have a misplaced loyalty to family above the Word of God. Yeah, you know, I know that they're doing something they're not supposed to do, but they're family. How can I oppose them? How can I speak up against what they're doing? Or maybe it's a misplaced loyalty to a personal standard or conviction above the revealed Word of God, where we elevate our standards to where we begin worshiping the standard instead of worshiping the God behind the standard, or we begin worshiping the principle instead of the God behind the principle. And so now we think we're serving God by holding fast to these principles but we are forgetting about the character of God in the background. Or perhaps the misguided loyalty to tradition above the revealed will of God. See, I talked about the pendulum swinging whereby we have loyalty to culture above the will of God. Well, the pendulum can swing the other direction as well, well whereby we are loyal to tradition above the revealed will of God. All areas where we can have misplaced loyalties, misguided zeal, where we can follow after that which we think is right before God when in fact we are ignoring what God has already showed us in His Word in order to do it. And it can place us on the path towards spiritual failure. You say, Pastor, is it really that big of a deal? Is it really that big of a deal that we elevate tradition above the Word of God? Is it really that big of a deal that we elevate culture above the Word of God and the will of God? Is it really that big of a deal that we're more loyal to our church or to our pastor or to our family than the revealed will of God. Yes, it is. 
It really is. As of 2009, a study done by Answers in Genesis revealed that two-thirds of church-going youth in this generation will leave the church when they leave their home. Two-thirds of church-going youth will leave the church once they live on their own. Those numbers are astounding. 66%. If we were to parallel that statistic in this church, pretty much every child on this side of the room, statistically, would not be in church when they leave the house. Statistically, that's probably about two-thirds. Maybe even a couple from this side having to move over. That is an astronomical number of people leaving the church. And the question is, why? Why are so many young people leaving the church? Because these kids are coming to church. They're doing church things, but they're leaving with their loyalties in the wrong place. They come to church because they're loyal to family. They come to church because they're loyal to tradition. They come to church because they're loyal to their church. They come to church because they're loyal to their pastor. They find a church that is loyal to culture. And so they become loyal to their understanding of the church and culture. They come to church and they are loyal to their personal standards, but they never form a loyalty to the Word of God. They never form a relationship with God. And so even though they have all of these loyalties, like Peter had loyalties to his idea of what the kingdom of God was, to his idea of how it should come about, to his idea of how he needed to fight to save Jesus Christ, he was being loyal to all of these things, but he wasn't being loyal to Christ, and it led him down a road where he failed to do what the will of God. Now would to God there would not be one child in this room, much less adult who in 10, 15, 20 years would have left the church behind. And I'm not saying that children in this room are going to do that. By God's grace, they won't. But if we are in our personal lives or in our families or in our church fostering loyalties to our church or our family or our traditions or our standards, or culture above our loyalty to the Word of God, whereby we are teaching our children to hang on tight to everything but God's Word and their relationship with Jesus Christ, then we're setting them up for spiritual failure. And that's the lesson of this morning. We'll look at two more potential failures this evening. But as we close, may I encourage you. I'm grateful, and I thank God to whatever degree you are loyal to this church. I'm, I thank God for whatever degree you are loyal to your pastor. I thank God you are to whatever degree loyal to the traditions of faithful men of years gone by. I'm thankful for whatever degree you are loyal to personal standards in your life. I'm thankful for these things. They're right and they're good. But none of them should supersede our loyalty to the revealed will of God. 
Now, by God's grace, they're going to be in line with one another, right? Your loyalty to your church and your pastor and traditions and standards and family should never conflict with the Word of God. And if God is gracious to this church, you'll never have to choose between the Word of God and your church or the Word of God and your pastor. But if we don't frame our loyalties carefully, and God forbid that day should come, are your loyalties in the right place? Have you been learning the Word of God and the will of God to where even though it doesn't make sense that Peter should not fight when Jesus Christ is being arrested, he knows the will of God so he's not going to fight. Where do your loyalties lie? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the Word of God. I pray that um, it would have gone forth this morning. I know that this message could be a little bit confusing. I know that it could have sounded like I was preaching against myself this morning. And Father, I, I pray that um, whatever words might have been confusing would have been interpreted by your Holy Spirit or fallen to the ground unheard. But Lord, as we look at the Word of God, we see a man in Peter who had the wrong loyalty. He didn't understand what Jesus Christ had taught him time and time again. And so when it came down to a true spiritual decision, he failed. He failed in Matthew 16. He failed in John 13. Here he is again in John 18. Failing to align himself with God's perfect will for Jesus Christ. And Lord, it's not my fear, but it certainly is a possibility that the men and women in this room, myself included, might have misplaced loyalty, whereby we are loyal to other things above the Word of God. And so when the time comes for us to truly be tested, we fail to perform the will of God because we have misplaced loyalty. Lord, I pray that there would not be a man, a woman, or a child in this room who would be in that position. I ask that if you have laid upon the hearts of any man or woman misplaced loyalties in their lives, whereby they are loyal to something above the Word of God, that they would frame their hearts aright, that they would correct it now before they come to the place where it causes spiritual failure. I pray for the children in this room that there would not be one child who would fall away from your perfect will. That there would be young people from this room that go on to serve you in business, serve you in their homes, to serve you in the ministry. That the multiplication of disciples that is beginning now would continue for generations to come. And we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.